So we covered some controversial topics. So since we're warmed up, now I'm going to do eschatology. (laughs) That's funny. Didn't really think about that until right now. Well, let me just um, say this. Uh, Eschatology, what is it? First off, it's the study of the last things. What we have covered so far is Ascension Day. Jesus ascended back to the Father. He was glorified completely. He sat down at the right hand of the Father from which he rules and reigns. Then on Pentecost, we talked about the fact that the Spirit of God goes out. Because he ascended, the Spirit descends, and now the church is empowered to be the regiments of God's army in this world. So now what I want to do is talk about, well, then what happens? Right? We have to divide the church up in half so we can meet at different times? Is that? No. That was one joke that uh, Baker made, is that the elders of the church are dividing the church in two. I thought that was funny. More on that later. Right? We look around, what's happening? Is he? Re- I mean, all, think all the things I've said, these, uh, Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. That's funny, Mike. We have this uh, overwhelming, unbelievable power in the Holy Spirit to overcome this world, ourselves, sin, Satan, death. Come on. So what I'm not going to do, because when you, you get into eschatology, you get into uh, you know, post-millennialism, pre-millennialism, amillennialism, pre-trib, post-trib, right? Are we all suddenly going to disappear? Uh, I, t- I told you that. I had family members who believed in the tribulation, and so when they would leave the room, I would hide when I was a kid. It's not very nice. I don't suggest doing that. I am not going to explain a complicated set of events. I am not going to get out a flow chart and talk about uh, when rains begin and end and uh, when beasts rise and fall. and It's very confusing. And that's usually what these conversations are about. This sermon is called Plowing in Hope. Uh, it's, it's common now to talk about eschatology in this way. Either it's one of pessimism or optimism. It's one of hope or one lacking all hope. And, and what I want to do is just give you a vision of what Jesus is doing right now to, to encourage you and inspire you and to give you understanding about the circumstances that you find yourself in. My text is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10. This is what it says. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness to us. We thank you for your steadfast love and your um, unwavering mercy and goodness and kindness that you show to us. We pray, God, that uh, as we consider what it means that you are ruling and reigning, what it means that we are empowered by the Spirit, I pray, God, that you would, you would um, te- teach us to look at you and not our circumstances, to look at you and not ourselves. May our eyes be opened, our minds be opened, uh, and may we, Lord, draw nearer to you, and may we, Lord, be more effective as your children in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, in commenting on our passage... Calvin wrote, it it is an unjust thing that the husbandman, a farmer, should lay out his pains to no purpose in plowing and thrashing, but that the end of his labor is the hope of receiving the fruits. As it is so, we may infer that this belongs to oxen also, but 
Paul's intention was to extend it farther and apply it principally to men. Now, the husbandman is said to be a partaker of his hope when he enjoys the produce which he has obtained when reaping, but hoped for when plowing. A man ought to enjoy the fruit of his labor. The law of God states this very plainly in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 5 through 7. A man ought to enjoy the fruit of his labor. It's God's law that a man would enjoy the fruit of his labor. A man plows in hope. <laughs> what kind of farmer would go out? A pessimistic farmer, right? No, oh, this is meaningless. Dragging this. How far do you think he's going to get behind that horse pulling this giant plow, pushing this plow through the ground? if he didn't have some hope that there would eventually be, you know, wheat. A man plows in hope. A man buys a field in hope. A man takes a wife in hope. And it is right and good that the man should enjoy the object of his hope. A man labors in the hope of the consummation of his labor. That's the only reason he does it. So if Jesus says, do not fear the world, for he has overcome it. If he says, all authority on heaven and earth are his... So go forth on the great commission mission. Then what is the hope under which we labor? That Jesus has overcome the world. That Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. That he stands victorious over all of his enemies. And this is the meat and drink of heaven. This is the wedding feast of the Lamb of which we already are participating every week. When... We eat the first fruits of Christ's harvest laid here on the table before us. Jesus was raised from the dead as a sign and seal of our rising from the dead. Our hope is Jesus, his victory, his lordship, his work, his spirit. That's why we plow. And if our hope is Jesus, do we hope in vain? If our hope is Jesus, is is it a vain hope? If our hope is Jesus, do we not have a reason to boldly and confidently anticipate the fruit of our hope? The fruit of God's final harvest is so abundant that the church militant is fed from just the first fruits millennium after millennium. Now, this is a metaphor, but think about it. Jesus rising from the dead was the first fruits of the final harvest. And he is the life of the world. And and there's so much life in him that he literally feeds the church as it marches out on its mission from just the first fruits of the harvest. Just the first fruits are so rich and so abundant that he can feed the church militant generation after generation after generation as the church expands and more and more people come in. He never runs out of food. Now, if that's just the first fruits, what do you think the harvest is going to be like? The Bible teaches an eschatology of hope, an eschatology of Christ's dominion, the way and the truth and the life of the entire world. Eschatology is not about a specific chronology of events or some distant, hazy future that we cannot see or comprehend. It's about how you put your socks on. It's about how you change diapers and the fact that you have to change diapers. It's about the alarm clock and the debit card and the commute to work It's about the midterm elections. It's about marriage and childbearing and childrearing and homeschool curriculums. That's what the eschatology of hope is about. Now, no, no, no. See, we we want to talk about golden streets. We want to talk about the future. We want to talk about all the glorious stuff that's coming. But the eschatology of hope is about putting your shoes on in the morning a certain way and going to work a certain way and dealing with your boss a certain way 
and changing the diapers a certain way. And, and right again, I thought we were past this. Our, our little boy Peter, he, he's he's been getting up in the middle of the night and climbing the walls and screaming. And we figured out it was because he's listening to Pooh Bear stories while he sleeps, and he's starting to act it out. And I'm just telling, I thought we were past all this, right? The kid's like almost three. But you hear this, I mean, it's like a jungle in there. Right? And there's, there, there is a eschatology of hope way of dealing with that and not. Heaven has invaded earth. The future has invaded the present. The glorious future of heaven's eternal reign of joy has come into the present. Right? All the Jews thought that the, the resurrection happened at the end of time. What no one expected was for that moment to invade the present world and change the nature of this world. Now, I want you to come with me on a little trip. I want you to go on a small journey with me. Okay? I, I want you to set aside your circumstances. I want you to set current events aside. I want you to set your angst and your anxiety and your fear aside for a moment. Set aside all that is carnal and present and temporary. And I want you to fix your eyes with me on the victorious king and consider where he's going with this story. Now, if we turn to Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, do I know where it is? Here it is. Titus chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 11 through 14. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, the grace of God has appeared. The word appeared is a word that is typically used for the sun. It's the word epiphany. Is where we get the word epiphany from this word appeared. Uh, Acts uh, talks about this, where the, no, no star or sun had appeared for several days. Paul was out on the sea. The grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has risen. Now, what do suns do? Right, The sun in the morning, what does it do? Does it go up or down? It goes up. Right? So, the grace of God has dawned. The grace of God has risen. In which way is it going, up or down? We stand in its life-giving light, and yet we wait for the appearing. It's, see, these verses have the tension that exists all throughout the New Testament. The grace of God has appeared. Suns go up. And yet, we're waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior who gave himself to redeem us from lawlessness. So though the sun is up and it is rising higher, we're still waiting for an appearance. And that is exactly where we're at. We're in the middle of something. Not at the beginning of it, not at the end of it. We're in the middle of it. We await the full revelation of God's victorious Son, the full zenith of the Son of Righteousness. 
We zealously work as the sunlight of Christ spreads to cover everything until the full light of Christ drives all darkness out of the world. The full revelation of Christ's victory over everything. Right? The, the sun is rising and we're waiting for it to get higher and higher and higher and cover more and more and more until there is no more darkness. Now, it's difficult for us to understand this because we're like fish. If, if I went down to the, to the lake and I, and I caught a fish and I, and I asked him, what it, can you explain to me what it's like to be wet? Do you think the fish would be able to explain it? What would he compare it to? He doesn't know anything else except wetness. Now, for us, part of, part of our problem, so sometimes when you look at the Old Testament and then you look at us, part of our problem is that we live in this light all the time. We've never known a moment where it wasn't covering everything that we see. And so what we need to do is someone to explain to us what it's like to be wet. Right? Because we struggle along and we don't realize that the light of, of the Lord Jesus Christ is all around us and spreading and spreading and spreading and, and, and taking in more and more and covering more and more and more. And so we have to stop for a moment and step outside of the story and explain to us what it means to be wet. We need to step out of it by the means of our imaginations to appreciate that we stand not, right? Because there, there, there are these moments in, in the daytime, if you've ever noticed, at evening time and morning time, where the light, you can't really tell which one it is. Have you ever noticed that? You're like, I, you know, is it 5 o'clock at night or 5 o'clock in the morning in the midsummer? And many of us think that right, it's 5 o'clock in the evening. But it's actually 5 o'clock in the morning. The sun has come up, but it's only just come up. And so we grow very pessimistic because we think the sun is declining and it's getting darker and darker and darker, but it's actually the opposite. It's getting lighter and lighter and lighter. We stand in the growing sun at mid-morning and all around us is truth and beauty and goodness. In the corner of your wife's smile and the laughter of her babies in payday and peanut butter, at funerals and football games, in the aches and pains of growing older and the horror of cancer, in Holocaust and holy war, we plow in hope. It's lighter out than it was an hour ago because we stand in the growing light of the day of the Lord. Now, I know it looks like late evening, but it's early morning. We sit at the high feast of Jesus and taste the first fruits of hope Every Sunday, because our enemies round about the communion table are defeated by the Lamb of God. That's what Psalm 23 is about. He has set a table in the midst of our enemies. And that table is, is the wedding feast of the Lamb that from the end, the end has invaded the present. The feast at the end that we will eat together after things are consummated has begun now. And we, right? Oh, this is a table set amidst enemies, right? Because we look out the window, we see them running around all over the place. And so we put our hand to the plow and don't look back. Now here's what we need to understand. God's people need to understand these things. Our hope is Jesus. We are his plowmen. And we will participate in his glorious harvest. Our hope is Jesus. We are his plowmen. And we will participate in his glorious harvest. Now theologian David Chilton wrote this. 
The Bible gives us hope, both in this world and the next. The Bible gives us an eschatology of dominion, an eschatology of victory, that is not some blind, everything somehow will work out by itself kind of optimism. It's a solid, confident, Bible-based assurance that before the second coming of Christ, the gospel will be victorious throughout the entire world. Now, the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery says, the essential quality of hope is that it is oriented to something in the future that one expects but does not yet possess. Right? What did Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. He had an eschatology of hope. And because he had an eschatology of hope, he plowed faithfully. That is what is expected of us now, because we live in, right? we live in the early morning hours where the sun is up, but it's not yet up as high as it's going to go, and, this, and the light has not yet spread to quite everyone. Now, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. All things are under his feet. All rule and authority and power are Christ's, whether everyone recognizes it or not. The same tension is found here as in the Titus passage. Jesus' lordship is not yet acknowledged by all, and so the reality of the gospel confronts the assertions of the nightly news. The man-centered pessimism and rank unbelief of the world. We can't look at it and say, well, I guess there isn't really an eschatology of hope. But the, very, right, the reason we need an eschatology of hope is because of what we see on the nightly news. We find ourselves in the age of resurrection where dying and rising are everyday realities. It's not something that happens at the end. It's an everyday reality for all of us. Jesus was raised as the first fruits so that we would know that a harvest is coming. That's why he did it. If, if there was no resurrection in the middle of history, right? why would we continue to plow? Why, there would be no hope in which we plowed. We'd still be waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. But he came in the middle of the story and he said, here, let me show you what it's going to look like. And he rises from the dead and he goes about right, teaching and instructing. And then he ascends into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and all authority is given to him and the Spirit of God goes out and he says, now this, this is the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like, dying and rising. Jesus' promises to us now are as if a historian were to walk up to a paratrooper in Normandy on D-Day plus two, which is today, embracing the trooper. Right? Can you imagine? If I got to go back in time and there, I'm on D-Day, right? the day after D-Day, and there's a paratrooper, and I go running over to him, and I'm like, oh my God, you guys did it. You did it. You totally defeated Hitler. This was the thing. This is the thing you needed to do, was land here. Right? What would that paratrooper tell me? Well, you're insane and you're dressed funny. I would sound like a madman if I came to a paratrooper on D-Day plus one or two or three and said, you guys did it. But we know historically that that was the moment, right? Now there's a Western front. In the e on the Eastern front, they relieve the pressure. The Russians can now rise up, crush the Nazis, with us punching them in the back of the head the whole time. And it was nothing but victory after that. But a foxhole is a long way from hearth and home. right? Even after a victorious battle. That, that's an old saying that uh, I heard somewhere the Marines used to say. 
The foxhole, after, even after a victory, is a long way from hearth and home. It doesn't feel like victory most of the time, especially when you're burying people after the battle. But our situation now, this sermon is like a historian coming to the present and saying, listen, guys, it, D-Day happened. Awesome. You did it. And what do we say to, to that? We say, uh, have you looked around the foxhole lately? We've got a long way to go. Jesus won, but he is still cleaning up through his spirit-empowered regiments, and the last enemy to go down will be death itself. Jesus defeated the general and is working his way down to the last soldier. We know it's true, but this feast of promise is set amidst very real enemies. Jesus turned the tide on D-Day, and yet we still yearn for V-E Day, don't we? And that is our hope. That's, our, that, that's why we keep fighting. We know that D-Day happened. We're told that V-E Day is coming. Victory in Europe is coming. And so what, what, what did those soldiers do? They fought and fought and fought and fought. What would we think of them if they heard that D-Day happened and gave up? Right? We have to understand the nature of the war in which we're engaged. The, the, the essential victory has occurred. And like I said before, remember this was from a few weeks ago. The king looks about. He says, well, pretty much whooped up everybody here. Uh, send in the reserves to clean it up, and I'll be uh, at the tent giving orders. Let me know if you need anything. Right now, are those units that get sent out still possible that they could lose somebody? Is it still possible they could get turned back at some point? Yes, but they're mopping it up. It's pretty much over. And, and this is the, the view that we need to have of our cer- current circumstances. Isaiah chapter 9 expressed this eschatology of hope. They were waiting for the Messiah to come because they knew that it would turn the tide. They knew that it would change things. Now, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, is quoted directly in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16. And it's Zechariah, it's John the Baptist's father, and he understood what he understood the, the time that he was in. And this is what he says in Luke chapter 1, verse 78 through 79. This is Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. He says this, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That was what they were expecting. And then notice how the apostles, as I said earlier, express the coming of Christ, the grace has dawned, in the fact that the Son of Righteousness has risen. And what does light do? What does the sun do? Eschatology is not the overly complicated set of doctrines that so many have made it out to be. It is hope for every person who's sitting in the shadow of death, who's sitting in darkness. Consider what Jesus calls himself. He calls himself the light of the world. He is the son of righteousness. The metaphor he uses from nature, focus on that. Think about this. Every time you go outside, and you you know what? I need a little hope right now. You just look up in the sky, and what's that giant? Well, around here you can't really see it, I suppose. (laughs) Carry a picture of it. But this is the kind of thing Jesus is always doing. I'm the bread, I'm the door, I'm a lamb, I'm a gate, I'm the sun. Because what he wants is for you to be able to walk around and look around and draw hope from the things that you see with your eyes. The sun rises at morning and ascends. It climbs farther and farther into the sky. As its light touches more and more, it reaches to everything. During the day, clouds and buildings and trees can create shadows, but remove the object and the sun's rays touch everything. Right? When the sun is in the sky, the only thing that blocks it is are objects. You put a building there, you put a tree there, you put a person there, and it casts a shadow. So what happens when you remove the building, the tree, the person? 
the shadow dissipates. That's what we're called to do. Right? We look around and we say, yeah, man, there's a lot of shadows around here. There's a lot of stuff to move. And so we, and this is what we do in our own lives, right? There's hatred that we show people. You take the hatred away and the light of, the, of Christ comes. You use angry words with your kids. You repent of the angry words, you take them away, and the light of Christ comes. You're removing obstacles so that the light of Christ touches everything. C.S. Lewis said, A man can no more diminish God's glory by ref, uh, refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. I love that particular quote. But, but that's what we're dealing with. The, right? Take away the prison walls, and that, that lunatic is running around in the sun, no matter what he's scribbled on the wall. But we're surrounded in this culture that's trapped like a lunatic, and they're scribbling on the walls like madmen, because they're madmen. <laughs> And what happens when we take all of that away and you let the light of Christ come and shine upon them? The sun is up. The light of the world is in the heavens and its light touches everything. And so get ready to get obstacles out of the way. The hope that we have is the strength by which we work. Our hope is why we are zealous. That's the Titus passage again. He, he, he wanted a people of his own possession who who were made zealous for good works. So he teaches them, right? The grace that appears in the sky trains them how to say yes and how to say no, how to be righteous and how to be unrighteous. It makes them zealous for good works. We are Jesus's plowmen. We were not saved for our own sakes. We were saved to do something. We were saved to work. Right? We're, we're servants in his house. And what do servants do? Do servants lie around in hammocks, drinking little drinks with little umbrellas in them? Eating olives? Our vocations fulfill the cultural mandate and the Great Commission. Now, I've talked about this before, so I'll just review it briefly. But listen to these two verses. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 through 20. I'm going to read them, and you, you tell me what this sounds like. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What's left out of that? Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Fill the earth, subdue the earth, have dominion over the earth. Everything is encompassed in this command. Likewise, teach all the nations, all the words of Jesus includes everything. What's left out? The command to rule and subdue and fill the world encompasses everyone and everything. The command to teach every tribe and tongue the words of Jesus encompasses everyone and everything. This is what God's mission for the church is. He wants Christian blacks and Christian whites. He wants Christian Asians and Christian Latinos. He wants Christian cops and bankers and brewers and framers. He wants Christian wives and mothers and writers and sewers and bakers and lawyers. Yes, even lawyers. Every career, every profession in which Christians engage is aimed at the advancement of Christendom. This is what I was talking about earlier. This is one means to advance the aims of Christendom. Right? But I'm one man. 
standing up here making a message. Do you think that the world needs more than that? Uh, I sure hope so, as the one delivering the message. What, what Jesus wants is for his soldiers to go into every conceivable job, every conceivable work, place of work, every conceivable eco, eco, economic, sociological, economic location, every neighborhood, every town, every tribe. He wants Christians working at Wendy's, and he wants Christians working at Freddy's, and he wants Christians working at Boeing. He wants Christians everywhere because those Christians in those locations are going to be the ones showing what the gospel looks like, what the gospel is. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Reconcile all things, all jobs, all workers, all people, all countries, all lands, all languages, whether in heaven or on earth. Jesus is reconciling everything, making peace through the blood of his cross. The sun climbs in the sky and touches everything, so we need to get everything out of the way of this life-giving light. How does God reach into everything? He converts people in every conceivable profession and circumstance. What does a Christian engineer look like? A Christian accountant, a Christian carpenter, a Christian clerk, a Christian coder. I, go on, I could go on and on. Now, right? you have Christians. There they are. They're sitting in the break room. I remember this. I, I, most of you know, I was a court clerk before I had this job. I remember sitting in the break room. I usually ate in my car, but I realized that was not very Christian of me. So I would go in the break room and hear about, you know, whatever. The nonsense I would hear about. So I remember sitting there. I was like, you know what I'm going to do? Is just, you know, today I'm just going to be patient. I'm going to endure whatever i got to endure. And I'm just going to demonstrate the virtue of patience today. And then the next day I was like, I'll try another one. I'll try kindness. Right? Now, I remember the first time I went up to a coworker at, at the courthouse. It was like my first week. And I apologized for being rude. And they literally ran away. Like, they were like at the copier and they, they had no idea what to do. And they literally just kind of turned and ran off. I, I, I remember that distinctly. I was like, okay, well, I don't think that person's been apologized to in a while. And why not? Now, the thief on the cross and the centurion who was standing there who said, oh, yes, certainly this was the uh, Son of God. What did they, who preached the gospel to them? Well, Jesus did. Right? What did they see? They saw how he suffered. They saw how he endured being mocked and ridiculed. The centurion was standing there when in the last moments Jesus is hanging on the cross and he thinks of his mother. And he says to John, John, behold your mother. Mary, behold your son. He was thinking of her at the end there. And that thief was converted because he saw the gospel. That centurion understood who Jesus was because he saw it. Right? We, uh, the reformed types especially, are too into words. We're too into um, packaged, prepackaged messages. The centurion and the thief on the cross, how, do, how were they converted? That is something that we need to ponder a great deal. We think it's the job of professional ministry workers 
But the good news is a way of life, not merely words. One man, one profession, one family, one church at a time, one step at a time, one furrow at a time. Our hope is our strength, our confidence, and our reason for plowing. Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. You are serving the Lord Christ. And that has to do with how you're filing and faxing. That has to do with how you're sewing. That's how you're, right, the, the homeschool curriculum. Are you demonstrating the gospel to those little kids? How you're dealing with them throughout the day. Right? Husband keeps calling and he wants to know what's for dinner. Uh, this is my wife I'm using as an example. Oh, he needs me to, what is, what is it? I need to, he need to get me from the store. Hold on, I got to go and text this person. Oh my gosh, now I got to send an email to the ladies in the church. Okay, uh, yeah, now the, the little kid I'm trying to train, he's only two. He needs to go to the bathroom. Now, is there all kinds of opportunities there, ladies, for her to demonstrate what the gospel doesn't look like? Right? I mean, this is, uh, Nancy Wilson had this quote recently and she, she was a very successful woman, and then she married Doug Wilson. Ha ha. And she's standing there at the sink, and she thinks, this is, this is what God wants me to do? This is the glamorous thing, is dishes? This is the difficult struggle? And you know what she heard in her mind when she said that? No, he, I want you to do it cheerfully. <laughs> Oof, even harder. God placed you in the place that you were in, in the job, in the neighborhood, in the family, because of the people there. Because they, he has ministry goals there. Not somewhere else. Right? We're always looking for this opportunity that exists somewhere. And yet we're right where he wants us, doing the very thing he wants us to do. God has made us a part of his body. He has made us his hands, he's made us his feet, he's made us his muscles, he's made us his, um, a part of himself, his feet and presence in this world as ministers of reconciliation. He expects us to plant, to build, to work. Our zeal and our hope are that we are working for God and that we will participate in the harvest that is coming. God created an interdependent universe. I can plant as many seeds in my backyard as I want, but I can never make it rain. This is something that modern Americans really have a hard time grasping. Because, right, there is, in a sense, I could really live all by myself. But the world in which we live is a farmer, right? A farmer can go out there and he can sweat and plow and plant. He can't make it rain at all. It's an interdependent universe. Now, John chapter 4, this is what Jesus says after the incident with the lady at the well. He says, So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See that the fields are white for harvest already. The one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered in to their labor. Now, does anyone know who the first pastor of this church was? Laura might know. I'm looking around. Joel knows. Some of us have heard his name. But you know this church was actually began like 35 years ago. We're on our third or fourth name. Now, who who did all that planting? Who were sitting in these seats? Actually, do you know that we've only been in this location for six years? There was another location we were at 
off in the middle of the boonies. You ever remember that? Oh, I was married there. It was ugly. I remember uh, Peter also got married there, and it was so beautiful that they uh, suggested to us that we go get our wedding clothes on and come back and take pictures because it looked better than when we were there. Sorry, my wife's at home. But she was pregnant and we couldn't do it. Have you ever thought who, who you're here now doing the work of Redeemer? Who was doing it before you? There's a there's this old Peanuts cartoon, you know, and uh, the you know Charlie Brown, and they have to do a uh, paper on church history, and, and the little little kid sits down to do it, and he says, "My pastor was born in 1934." What Christian ministries already existed? What churches already existed in this neighborhood before we ever moved into it? Does anyone know? I hardly know. Did you inherit your faith from your parents? When did it start? Are you the first generation? Some of us are. Some of us aren't. You're, you're entering into other people's work. I, I, we, we separate the work from the people, right? I've, I've said this before. The, the paint job on my car was finished sometime in, you know, in June of 1998. And it looks beautiful. And I occasionally think of whoever that person was who painted it, and they just did a great job. Because all around us, we, get, we receive the labor of others, and, and we don't realize that we're entering into all this work. Now, Jesus at the well with that woman, right? For a woman who was pretty promiscuous in her life, she seemed to know quite a lot about theology. Because Jesus doesn't really, right? He just connects dots that she already has. She, right? This Samaritan woman who's kind of a loose woman, is sitting there talking about the worship in the temple. She's talking about the history of Israel. Where did she learn all of that? But there, Jesus enters into the story. He sits down and he says, here, let me, let me just take a string and wrap it around this, pull it over here and wrap it around this one and give you a picture of the triune God. Boom, she's converted. Right? Where, he's just working with what was already there. That was his point to the disciples. The, if you look around, it's white for harvest. It's ready. But you have to understand, you're entering into the labor of others. Other people, right? If you get so frustrated because so-and-so isn't converted like you really hoped, you thought you did all this work, really all you could have been doing was watering. All you could have been doing was creating weeds that somebody else has to deal with. I'll be honest. You don't know. But we want to control everything. We want to do all the parts ourselves. A day is coming when clothed in Christ's resurrection and Christ's righteousness, we will see the reaper bringing in his sheaves. We will see all the finished work. Psalm 20, 126, verse 5 through 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. You will enter in to labor that other people have already begun. Other people will take it up once you're done with it, and but one day you will see all of it come up out of the ground, cut, and dragged into the barn. You will see the, the finished work of the whole church. See, this is what I find so fascinating about this. Every knee will bow. Everyone will say, yes, in fact, this is Jesus, the anointed of God. He is the Lord. Everyone's going to say it. He says the last enemy to be defeated, not the first, the last enemy to be defeated will be death. 
John chapter 5, verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. The believers or all? Every single person who ever lived will come out of the tomb. All of them. John Lennon, as hard as he tried to imagine a world in which it wouldn't happen, it will happen even to him. It will happen to all of us, and all of us will look around, whether we believe it or not, and say, oh my goodness, he was right. And oh my goodness, he is powerful. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 through 55. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Romans 14, 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. John chapter 5, verse 29. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So everyone's getting resurrected. There's just two wings to it. Our Lord will raise every person. Death will, in the end, be completely defeated for everybody. And you will be there. You started as one grain, (laughs) and then you were crushed and ground. Then you were put into a bowl with a bunch of other grains you'd never seen before. And then you were all whipped together, pummeled, shaped, molded, and then placed in a fire and baked. And that day will come where the loaf is done. And the Lord God will take it out of the stove out of the oven, I don't even know where it goes, my wife does all the cooking, and he will place it there on the table at the wedding feast of the Lamb. You will see the fruition there of all your labors here, all the tears, all the pain, all the difficulty, all the trials, all the persecution, if it ever comes. You will see, right? Planned Parenthood does not have the final say on the definition of murder. Every grave here is an empty tomb there. Every Every tear here will be wiped away there. What is our hope? What is our hope? That we have a faithful and trustworthy husband and Lord. That's it. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Now here's one I usually use for marriage, but this is for you, you and I. Philippians chapter 5, verse 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, that requires what? Actual washing. Actual shaping, actual molding, actual loving. Right? That requires the husband to actually instruct and teach and sanctify. Which means, on the other side of it, as the recipients, it means that we actually have to be washed. It means that we actually have to be sanctified. It means that we are not yet splendid. 
but will this husbandman, will this farmer, will, will this, <laughs> the groom, Jesus Christ, what kind of bride is he going to present on the last day? And is it just you? Or is it all of us together? Because that's what the bride of Christ is, is the church. This is an interdependent mission that we are on. The light of the world spreads, and it will touch everything. And at the harvest, even the sun of this world will be unnecessary, for we will truly see the light of the world, the life of men. And we will see all things reconciled in him. Look at all the exposed darkness. Right? Look, look around your world. Do you see some obstacles in the way between people and the son of righteousness? Do you see people trapped in little cells scrawling darkness on the walls? What, what do they need? They need someone to come and tell them that right, this cell is an illusion. Right? It's, let's start a matrix. Give them which pill you want to take. Your job is to reconcile all things, to get all the obstacles out of the way. Get them out of your life. Get them out of your spouse's life. Get them out of your children's life. Get them out of your community's life. Get them out of this church's life. And we just go on and on, and you see the sun goes higher and higher and higher and touches more and more and more. That, right, you look, you're not plowing in the middle of the night. You are plowing in the middle of the day. All authority in heaven and earth are his. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He has given us the Spirit. Does it look does it look bad? Does it look like the world needs some ministry? Does it look like the world needs to see what upright, obedient, selfless, loving, gracious, kind people look like? In your work and right? Where you shop? Thanksgiving at your house? Let us go from here and let us remember this. Our hope is Jesus Christ. He's accomplished everything. We're not waiting for anything else. He, he's done everything. What we now need to do is believe it. He's at the right hand of the Father. He has ascended. He is glorified. He is above and beyond anything and everything in this world, in this cosmos. We're not waiting for him to do anything else. We're waiting to believe it. To look up and see the sun and say, okay, now I'm going to put my hands to the plow and I'm not looking back. It is a glorious hope to which we have all been saved, right? Look at him, the sun, and you will see no darkness. And you will go about your work, right? If you keep your eyes on him, if you keep focused on him, you will do the work that has been given you to do, and you will not fear man, and you will, right? right? You will not fear what they say about you or can do to you. We all need this hope. We need to grab onto it with our hearts and our minds, our imaginations, with both hands. And we need to plow faithfully. Now, may we go from here and may we remember who the Lord is and what he has done. And let us plow faithfully. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your ministry to us. I pray, God, that you would help us to understand um, our circumstances. Pray, God, that you would uh, teach us to cry out to you that you would change our hearts in the midst of those circumstances, that you would set our eyes upon your son, Jesus, that we would remember that it is mid-morning in the day of the Lord, that you have done all things and they have been done well. We lack courage. We, we lack resolve. We lack 
faith. We lack hope. And we pray, God, that as we look to Christ, that we would be filled with all of those things, that we would be faithful to you, that we would be fruitful in this world, and that we would not build our own kingdoms, but that we would build the kingdom of Jesus Christ in this world as your bride, as your servants, as your children. And amen.